Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, the book of Romans, and we'll uh, eventually be in Romans chapter 4. And our topic uh, for this next session uh, is the second of the solas, which is grace alone. Uh, And the issue here uh, is the issue regarding salvation. Is salvation a gift of grace that has been bestowed by God upon sinful man, or is salvation a joint effort between God and man, where God does his part and then man does his part in order to secure salvation. Right, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that salvation was a cooperation, a cooperation between God and man. It was partially of the grace of God, but it was partially of the works of man. That There was human effort that was involved in securing the salvation of a person. Right, The man must play his part and present his work to God so that the transaction of salvation is secured, right? He must keep the sacraments. He must do those things that are necessary in order to have salvation, right? In the time of the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers, they saw that this was a false gospel, right? They understood rightly that if salvation was not a gift of grace that comes down from heaven, to undeserving sinful men, then it is not the true gospel. If there is any hint of human effort, any hint of man's work, any hint of man's participation, that this would pollute and corrupt the gospel so that there is no true gospel anymore. The reformers held and taught that the Roman Catholic Church was a false church. That the church had so corrupted and so polluted the true doctrines of the Bible, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, that it was no longer a true church. They believed and taught that the Pope was the Antichrist because they had substituted the true gospel with a false gospel of their own making. Their view is very similar to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 and where they would be taking their cue. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 says there, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In Galatians 1, 6-9, the issue that Paul is dealing with is the issue of circumcision. Circumcision is being added to the grace of God. Right, Salvation is a joint effort that God gives his grace. God does his part, but then the man is required to present circumcision and together, this work between God and man, the two work together to secure salvation. And the apostle says here that this cannot be. He says that no, that this is a false gospel. He says that even if he or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel than the one he preached, that that person should be accursed, that we must not pollute or let any contaminant come into the true gospel. The reformers saw this same thing in their own day, right, in regards to the Roman Catholic Church, that salvation was partially a work of God, but then that man made up the difference. That man, through his effort and participation, secured salvation. And they rightly understood that this was a false gospel. And because of this, there was no salvation in the church of Rome. And they were willing to die for these things. 
And many of them did die. Many of them did shed their blood for these truths because they knew that these truths were issues of life and death. That the very church was built upon, must be built upon, a foundation of truth. And that if you take that foundation away, that the whole church would come crumbling down. That there would no longer be any salvation among them. They understood rightly it was an issue of life and death. That it was not some minor issue, not some tertiary issue, not some secondary issue. But that the truth and the gospel were at stake. And so they fought. They contended. They sacrificed even their own lives for the sake of the gospel. And so we must do as well. This is why we need to talk about these issues. This is why these, these issues that were so important though 500 years ago during the Reformation are the same issues that we need to be talking about today. These are the things that we need to be addressing, that we need to be clarifying and understanding and, and teaching and, and holding to. The issues are still the same in our day as well as in theirs. We must understand these things and we must preserve and protect the gospel at all costs. If we, the church, do not have the gospel, we have nothing at all. The gospel is the church's treasure. The gospel is the church's power. And if we lose the true gospel, then we have no power. We have absolutely nothing at all. We're just a gathering of religious people. But there is no power for salvation. If the gospel we possess is not a gospel of grace then we possess a phony and a false gospel. And this is why we turn to this issue of grace alone. What does it mean when we say that salvation is of grace alone? And why is it so important that we understand this issue? Well, we'll take as our primary text Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. There it says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Here the apostle is arguing and showing, uh, using Abraham as an example. Abraham is the father of the faith. Abraham is the preeminent example of one who possessed the salvation of God in the Old Testament. He is the father of those who have faith. And so he is brought forward by the apostle as an example to see how was it that Abraham was justified? How is it that Abraham possessed the salvation of God? Was he saved by his works or was he saved by grace alone? And here he says, what was gained by Abraham according to the flesh? According to the flesh is another set way of saying according to his own works, according to his own efforts, right? What was there? What benefit? What gain in regards to salvation? In regards to eternal life, what value was there for Abraham in regards to his work and in regards to his flesh? 
Because he says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Right? If the, if the, the hinge or the crucial point that brought about Abraham's salvation was something that he did, something that he presented to God, then Abraham has something to boast about. Abraham has contributed something of himself that he presents to God that secures the salvation. Right? And this would make Abraham better than other men. This would make Abraham distinct and different from other men. Right? If Abraham possesses salvation and other men do not possess it, and what made the difference in why Abraham has salvation and they do not is because of something that Abraham produced within himself, then Abraham has something to boast about. But he says, but not before God, that no one can boast before God. So if Abraham has something to boast about before God, then it undermines and contradicts all of the scriptures. Abraham had nothing to boast in before God. And this is why it says that the scriptures say that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That Abraham was saved or justified not on the basis of his work, but on the basis of faith. On the basis of faith, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this faith that Abraham had was not something that was produced in Abraham, right? The faith that Abraham had, that he believed in God, was a faith that was given to him as a gift of grace from God. Now, this is very important for us to understand. We must be very clear on this point because the modern-day Arminians, right, or the semi-Pelagians, who are really little more than Pelagians, the Pelagian heresy is very much alive and well in our own day, right? In the Arminians, what they teach is that faith is what we present. Faith is what we present to God in order to secure salvation, right? So they're very much like what was taking place in Galatians chapter 1. There, it was circumcision. Circumcision is what we present to God to secure salvation. And Paul says, no, that this is a false gospel. Also, in the day of the Reformation, right? There, it was their keeping of the sacraments. They presented this to God, and this is what secured their salvation. In the same way, the Arminians make faith into a work. God offers salvation to all men, they say. He gives it equally to all. He makes the offer to all. And it is the faith of the man that secures it. And while it is true that the Bible does teach that faith is the condition of salvation, but the issue here is where does that faith come from? Right? Where does the faith originate in? Is faith produced in the will of man? Is it something that originates in the man or is faith something that is bestowed by God to sinful men, to undeserving men, produced in them through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible teaches and the Reformed tradition teaches that faith is a gift of God produced by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The Arminians reject this teaching. They reject this and they say that, no, this is not the case, that faith is something that is produced in man. And so what they do is a very tricky sleight of hand. They're actually very devious and very deceptive people because they make faith into a work. They say, no, 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 we don't believe in works-based salvation. We believe that salvation is by faith. But they make faith itself into a work. Right? What makes something a work is not just that it's something that you do, 
What makes something a work is where it originates. Where does it come from? Anything that is produced by man, that originates in man, is by nature, by definition, it is a work. Even if you call it faith, and even if you say it's not a work. So what Arminians do is they make faith into a work that is produced by the free will of man. And if it's produced by them, and it is a faith that secures salvation, then they would have something to boast about. But here the scriptures teach that we have nothing to boast in before God. He goes on in Romans chapter 4 verse 4. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Right? The one who works... Right, If someone is working for something, if someone goes out and they work in the field and they agree to work a certain amount of hours for a certain amount of pay and they perform their work, then at the end of the day they receive their wage. And the wage that they receive is not a gift. It is something that they are owed. It is something that they are due. And this is what he says. If we work, if we do something for our salvation, then the salvation would be a wage. It would be something that God paid in agreement with what we did with our work. But he says that this cannot be. Right? The wages are not a gift. They are his due. But he says, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Here, the distinction is between works and gift, or wage and gift. Works and wages go together, and faith and gift go together, right? It is a gift given by God, and the gift comes not through works, but through faith, and even the faith itself is a gift that has been bestowed by God, and this has always been the case. This was the case in Abraham. Abraham, who preceded the law of Moses, was saved not by works, not by keeping of the law, but by faith. And then in Romans chapter 4, the apostle, here he quotes David. He quotes David from Psalm 32 and says that David teaches the same thing that was true of Abraham. So in Abraham's day, salvation was by grace through faith. And in David's day, which was after the giving of the law, salvation is by grace through faith. It does not matter When a man lives, from Adam to the end of time, anyone who ever has been saved or will be saved, will be saved by grace through faith. It is not a work that they do. It is a gift that has been given to God, by God. So what makes the difference? What makes the difference between the one who possesses salvation and the one who remains dead in his sin? Right. This is the issue. And what this topic teaches is that it is the grace of God. It is God's grace that makes the distinction between one man over another. It is God's grace that makes one person a believer, that makes one person redeemed, that makes one person a new creation, right? It is the grace of God that makes him what he is, not his work. And it is a grace that God can give to whoever he pleases, Like God bestows his gift of grace on some, and then God withholds his gift of grace from others. So the reason that the one is saved is because of the grace of God. It is a gift that God has given. If it is a gift, 
then God is free to give it to whomever he pleases, that God can give it at his disposal according to his will. Right, And no one can complain and no one can boast. No one can say that this isn't fair because it's a gift. Right, If I want to give uh, $100 to one man as a gift and not give it to another, right, I have the freedom to do that. I can give it to the one man and he cannot boast because it's a gift that I've given to him. But the other man cannot complain and say that this is not fair and this is not right because I didn't owe him anything. It was not something that he was due. It was a gift, and I can give it to whomever I please. And this is what the Bible teaches. If you look over to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. Here it says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. Here he's showing that it's not as if God's promises to Abraham have failed. Because it's always been the case, right? It's always been the case from the beginning of time to the end of time that not everyone is going to be saved. This is what he's talking about. And this was true even within the immediate family of Abraham. Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish nation, the father of the people of Israel. Why is it that some of the Israelites possess salvation and other Israelites remain dead in their sin? And so he goes back to Abraham. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Being a physical descendant of Abraham is not the key issue. Right? That is not what guarantees one is a believer or an unbeliever. Right? It's not dependent on anything that comes from the flesh. But in the case of Abraham, it was through Isaac that his offspring would be named. Isaac, even though Abraham had another son named Ishmael, Ishmael remained dead in his sin, a pagan, an unregenerate man, and it was Isaac that the blessings came through. It was Isaac who was chosen by God and who was redeemed by God and who was given the grace of God. So even there among Abraham, even there among his children, one was an unbeliever and one was a true believer. He says that this means in verse 8 that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Right? It's not the children of the flesh. There's nothing uh, about someone's uh, heritage, about someone's lineage, about who their parents are that guarantees that they will be admitted into the kingdom of God. Right? It doesn't matter who we are according to the flesh. Your heritage, your lineage, your nationality, your race, your sex, your language, your ethnicity, none of these things matter. That is not the key in determining who gets in and who is left out. And this was the case with Abraham. It's not the children of flesh. Just because one was a child of Abraham did not guarantee that that one would be a believer. It's not of the flesh, but rather it's of the promise. It is the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. They are the ones who are the true children of God. Those who receive the promises of God and God gives those promises to whomever he pleases. He gives it to Isaac, but he withholds it from Ishmael. And this is what he says in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Right? God rejected Ishmael, but he gave the promise to Isaac. 
but not only there, right? We might say, well, okay, but that was different because, because Ishmael was the son of the slave woman. Ishmael was the son of Abraham and, and Hagar. But Isaac was the son of Abraham and Sarah, and that was the proper relationship. That was his true wife, and so that's why it happened, right? It's because that's the distinction. The distinction is in their mothers, right? The one had one mother and the other had a different one, and that's what made the difference. But no, he goes on and shows that this is not the case because not only was it the case in Abraham's family with his children that one was received, one was elect, one received the grace of God and the other one was rejected. But this also was the case in Isaac with his children as well with Jacob and Esau. Verse 10, he says, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather, Isaac, right? He, she received children by one man. Right, These children, these two sons, both have Isaac as their father, and they have Rebekah as their mother, and both of them have Abraham and Sarah as their grandparents. So they are equally united to these patriarchs and matriarchs. And it says there in verse 11, Though they were not yet born, and had done neither good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not but because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here he goes to great pains to show that election, the purpose of election, so that it might be established, and that God's promise and God's grace and mercy will come to whomever God chooses to give it, Right, that this is a prerogative that belongs to God. He presents as an example Jacob and Esau. Right, Jacob was a believer. Jacob was elect. He received salvation, and Esau remained a reprobate. He was cursed by God from the day of his birth. Right, the election took place before they were born, before they had done either good or bad. Right While they were still in the womb, it was declared that the older will serve the younger, that God had set his favor, his love upon the younger, upon Jacob, and Esau, who preceded him in birth, would end up serving him. And the reason this would take place, the reason the younger one, who typically, naturally, has the... the uh, not the place of preeminence, but has a lesser role. The reason the, the younger would proceed and be greater than the older is because God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. God set his love and favor on one and he hated the other. What made the difference? What made the difference between Jacob and Esau? It was because God gave his grace and mercy to Jacob and he withheld it from Esau. God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. He loved Jacob and he hated Esau. It was all based upon the grace of God. Now, can Esau protest? Can he say that this is not fair, that this is not right? No, he has nothing that he can say before God. And can Jacob boast? Can he? Does he have something to brag about? Is he superior to his brothers? No, we know that Jacob was an unbeliever from the, the womb as well, that it was the grace of God that made him what he was. So Jacob has nothing to boast in, and Esau cannot protest because he remained a sinful and wicked man until the day of his death. It all then goes back to God. 
all to the grace of God. Just as it says in Romans chapter 9, verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God can give mercy to one, and he can withhold it from another. If God wanted to, he could leave the whole world dead in sin, and everyone would die in their sin, and everyone would go to hell, and God would be praised forever by the angels. But if God wanted to, he could save every human being who ever lived. He has the power to do so. He could do so. Or, if God wanted to, he could save all but one person. He could save everybody who's ever lived except for one person, and that one person who died in their sin and went to hell would have nothing that he could complain about. Or, if God chose, he could send the whole world to hell and only save one person. And that person would have nothing to boast in. God can have mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy. Whomever he gives it to, he can do that. If he wants to give it to all, he can. If he wants to give it to none, he can. And no one can say that this is not fair, or this is not right, or that God has treated them unfairly. God is in the heavens, and he can do whatever he pleases. This is why it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? That Christ died for us while we were still sinners, right? While we were still dead in our sin, that it might be abundantly clear that his death for us was not prompted by anything good that he saw in us, right? We were enemies of God, hostile to him. We were still dead in our trespasses and sins whenever Christ died for us. And this shows beyond any doubt that what motivated God to send Christ to come and die for such wretched sinners like you and me was nothing good that he saw in us. It was wholly based upon his love, his love that he set upon us, right? That he gave to us. He gives it to us freely. A.W. Pink says this. Says that there was nothing in the object of his love to call it into exercise. Nothing in the creature to attract or prompt it. The love which one creature has for another is because of something in them. But the love of God is free and spontaneous and uncaused. The only reason God loves any is found in his own sovereign will. The Lord did not set his love upon you or choose you because you are more in number than any people. For you are the fewest of all people, but because the Lord has loved you. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. God has loved his people from everlasting, and therefore nothing of the creature can be the cause of what is found in God from eternity. He loves from himself according to his own purpose. 2 Timothy 1, 9. 1 John 4:19 says we love him because he first loved us. God did not love us because we loved him, but he loved us before we had a particle of love for him. Had God loved us in return for ours, then it would not be spontaneous on his part. But because he loved us when we were loveless, it is clear that his love was uninfluenced. It is highly important, if God is to be honored and the heart of his child is to be established, that we should be very clear on this precious truth. God's love for me and for each of his own, was entirely unmoved by anything in them. What was there in me to attract the heart of God? Absolutely nothing. But to the contrary, 
everything to repel him, everything calculated to make him loathe me, sinful, depraved, a mass of corruption with no good thing in me. This is why it is so important that we understand and we know and we contend for these truths. If we do not understand that the salvation of God is wholly based upon the love of God and the grace of God that He freely gives to whomever He chooses, then we will corrupt the gospel. We will teach a works-based salvation and man will have something to boast in before God. Just as it says in Romans chapter 11, verse 6, If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If salvation is on the basis of works, then grace is no longer grace. You have no grace. You have no salvation. So we must contend. We must fight. We must defend this truth against all enemies. That God's salvation comes as a gift of grace from start to finish. Everything in between is a gift of grace that God gives to whomever He pleases. This truth is essential for us to understand. It is essential to the Bible. It is essential to the gospel. And if we lose this truth, then we will lose the true gospel. We must confess boldly, unashamedly, without any fear, right? That salvation belongs to the Lord, as it says in Psalm chapter 3, verse 8. We have nothing to be ashamed of in preaching and teaching these truths. These are the truths of the Bible. These are the true doctrines of God that are found in the Bible. And we cannot be ashamed of God's word. For whoever is ashamed of me and my word, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. We cannot be ashamed to teach and to preach those things that are consistent with the true doctrines of the Bible. In Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 says, But I with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May this be our anthem. May this be our cry. May this be the song of our heart from now until the end of eternity. That salvation belongs to the Lord.